0: Buckle up, people. It's federal election time. You've got one vote. How are you going to decide who to vote for?
1: From Hope Media, How in God's Name Should I Vote is a podcast looking at how and why Christians interact with the political process. But don't worry, this is a campaign-free zone. We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we are going to dig deep into how following Jesus might impact your vote.
0: In this episode of How in God's Name Should I Vote, we will be tackling some of the really big issues as we draw closer to election date. They are almost always emotionally charged and firmly held convictions, the kind that when we differ on them, friendships can sometimes end you're probably running through the list in your head right now.
2: What concerns church-going Christians? Well, at one level, it's the same as everybody. They're humans.
0: (laughs) We'll be thinking about why people decide to commit their vote to one single consideration and what might be the dangers of such an approach.
3: And then I think there's this kind of false move that says we, we can hold on to the past if we just resist people who've got different beliefs. It's a misstep that Australia's been doing, I think, since the 19th century.
4: So I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he told us the story of the Good Samaritan, which really began with a spiritual question. How do I inherit eternal life and love God, love your neighbour?
2: My hope and prayer is an Australia built on truth, justice, love and hope. I think we've got a long way to go in working towards each of those. There
0: are lots of hot-button issues for Christians in this election, and stand by for the name of Jesus to be invoked to defend them. Incredibly, you'll very likely see the teachings of Jesus being pulled in very different directions. But as to the hot buttons, how do we decide which ones get our vote? And are there any policies we simply cannot, in good conscience, vote for? Let's start with Mike Frost, who says voting should leave a bad taste in our mouth, at least to a certain degree.
5: I'd say that Christians ought in that respect to be freed from the idea that they'll, they're likely to find a candidate that will satisfy them at every level. And so at some degree, they're going to have to hold their nose while they vote. So, you know, I'm going to find a candidate that, you know, 60% of what they stand for is, uh, is I can agree with, but that's better than the other candidates, then I'll vote for that person. A vote for that person is not an endorsement of everything that they
0: hold or everything that their party necessarily holds. If you walk in and out of the voting booth completely confident, maybe you're doing it wrong. That's a sentiment echoed by John Dixon. The interesting thing is sometimes
1: Christians split apart what original Christianity or New Testament Christianity held together. That is the kind of left and right of the political spectrum. I often think that left and right are both heresies. That is, they are splitting apart what Jesus held together. So Jesus was absolutely committed to the sanctity of life, the fundamental importance of family, sexual purity, and he was absolutely committed to what we call social justice. He wouldn't have called it that. Just love of neighbor on a, on a grander scale. Christians, are, sometimes they go, I'm just going to throw my lot in with one side of that equation when we've got to be trying to do both. And that makes it a really hard equation to tease out because you may find that one party is really pro-abortion and yet they're also really going to look after the poor. On the other hand, you may find a party is totally against abortion, and yet their asylum seeker policy is terrible. So Christians are going to be stuck, and I don't have any solutions. I, I am honestly talking to you unsure how I'm going to cast my vote, and it's, and it's got a lot to do with, with the very question you just asked me.
0: It kind of feels like we all need to join the circus and learn to juggle bowling pins. And one of those pins is religious freedom. It's been one of the major talking points in recent weeks. Israel Falau, anyone? Michael Callahan is the director of Freedom for Faith, a Christian legal think tank aimed to protecting the freedom of religion in Australia. I asked Michael about the policies both parties hold in protecting or diminishing religious freedom.
3: It's an interesting time, isn't it? So for a long time, we've had remarkable religious freedom by any kind of global or historical measure. We've uh, enjoyed freedoms that we haven't had to think about much at all. But we have seen a conversation that's been taking place over the last few years and which is getting real political and legal traction that is calling into question some of the things we've taken for granted for a long time. Both parties are a broad church when it comes to these things. But I think each party, each of the major parties, if they were true to themselves, would have no problem at all with religious freedom. It shouldn't be a contentious thing. So whether you take it from a individual liberty and freedom from a you know big bad government, you know, liberal parties should be happy to sign up for the, for that. Or whether you, you think of it in terms of protecting the multicultural diversity of a immigrant nation, you know, Labor Party should have no problem with saying that this is a really important part of who we are. And there is that kind of motherhood commitment that you get from both parties that says, yeah, yeah, we believe in religious freedom. They don't want to speak against it. But what we aren't seeing is a really solid, substantive, you know, this is what it will mean for the school. This is what it will mean for the faith-based organisation. This is what it will mean for the doctor uh, being asked to do this thing against their conscience.
0: That's an incredibly important point that you've just made, that the debate around religious freedom is actually part of a much wider conversation around the rights to freedom for every Australian, I'm going to speak around a really famous or rather infamous quote from George Brandis. When he was the Attorney General in 2014, stated that people have a right to be bigots in relation to proposed changes to the Racial Vilification Act in 2014. The comments were, I think, were purposefully incendiary, but his point was quite valid. We need to decide what kind of civil society we want to live in. Do you think that for some Christians, the sense of loss of a centrally Judeo-Christian ethic within our civil society has created such fear that they feel either unwilling or unable to engage the idea of religious freedoms for all?
3: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think not just for Christians. I think it's it's a broader cultural thing. There's a genuine kind of nostalgia for an Australia that was and for wanting to belong and a feeling that I'm not sure I recognise what's what's going on around me. And then I think there's this kind of false move that says we, we can hold on to the past if we just resist people who've got different beliefs. It's a misstep that Australia's been doing, I think, since the 19th century when we were scared of the Irish Uh, making Australia Catholic and, you know, leading us away from Britain. We keep seeing that mistake and we don't need to go the way of fear. And I think there's a distinctive place for Christians to not be anxious, to not be fearful, to be people of hope, not to be naive and Pollyanna about some of the challenges before us, but to be able to say we've got a genuine way of looking out to uh, to love our neighbor, to be public in the faith uh, for the good of others. Part of that is going to be religious freedom for all.
0: Let's explore that a little more. The Christchurch massacre has brought into very stark relief the reality that religious bigotry and extreme violence are real and they're present and they're not they don't simply happen in other parts of the world. They're not uh, conducted by people who are different to us. They are us. How can we show that religion isn't dangerous or is it inherently dangerous?
3: I think we need to be honest and have real conversations and say sometimes it is. You know, of course it is. And and globally that's true without question. There, there's all kinds of violence done by, against religious people. Some of the conversation that followed, even as the events were taking place in Christchurch, showed that people were just already had their scripts ready to go. And so we saw the disgraceful stuff that um, came from Senator Anning. He's now been censured by the Senate. But interestingly, the, as the Senate drew up that censure motion and they wanted to say what was wrong about it, one of the first things they did was to quote, international law that talks about the importance of religious freedom and we've been saying a very simple solution to a lot of these legal and political problems would be to just enact that as Australian law to say these genuinely are the things that we believe in that people should be able to have a faith and hold it and live it out and teach their kids and be free to worship and carry on in life that shouldn't be a controversial thing the Senate rightly kind of reached for that as a good statement of what was wrong. But what they didn't do was have a vision for what was good and what was beautiful and what could hold us together, you know, and they, they tried to find language for it. But in some ways, that's the one thing that the law can do. It can actually say, Look, we're actually going to put our colours to the mast on this and we're going to say this stuff matters and this is not a second class right that, is an afterthought or that gives way as, as other rights emerge. But it's actually key to the identity of many, many people in this country, that they hold a particular belief and it actually shapes who they are, that it gives expression to their values and they, they want to just live it out without apology and to do so alongside people with very different beliefs.
0: Michael, how can we use our vote in the upcoming federal election to protect religious freedom?
3: Well, the one party you must vote for is, no, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. And, um, and it's really important that we don't, because actually we want to be able to push all the parties to be able to take this seriously. And certainly from a freedom of faith perspective, we, we work with everyone and we don't go out giving election advice. But we do want to say this is r- really quite central to understanding how it is that we step into the public square, and so it just it needs to be part of the part of the way you you think about these issues, and you need to listen carefully to the different options which are there before you that the parties give, and not just accept that uh, any kind of she'll be right answers or you can trust us, but to look to the very specific kind of proposals that they bring. We can't just take for granted the freedoms that we've had for such a long time. We need to recognise that we are in changing times, and we need to actually say so we actually love these freedoms that we have and we think they're good and we think they're worth protecting and promoting and we're interested to do that beyond just on this saturday i um, casting this particular vote
0: protecting religious freedom is not straightforward and there isn't a clear way to vote on this issue and besides protecting my freedom means protecting other freedoms too and that's a whole other podcast so let's add another bowling pin and move from religious freedom to economics. Every election campaign is dominated by economics. Who intends to spend what money where? Who's going to bring the budget back into the black? Who's spending in the right place? We've moved from talking about millions to regularly talking about billions. The numbers are mind boggling, but of course, millions or billions. It's not really about actual money, right? It's actually about feeling secure. Jim Wallace is the author of God's Politics and founder of Sojourners in the United States. He is one of the world's most respected voices on social justice issues, and I asked him if we should prioritise a sound economy.
6: The question is, what is a sound economy? (laughs) What is a strong economy? If that is just how well the markets are doing, or whether the richer are getting richer and richer, or the economy is increasingly serving the needs of 10%, top 10%, or the top 1%, or in this country, the top (laughs) 0.1%. The numbers may look strong, but from a biblical point of view, that isn't a sound or a strong economy. And even economically, economic inequality is so great now. It will undermine our economics and our politics. And so how do we make sure... That in fact, there is opportunity that all people really do have, educationally, economically. How do we make sure that's true? So, I think chris have a lot to say about economy, what a sound economy is, what a strong economy is, and, and politics. The economy has got to be for all of us, and politics has to be for the common good, not just for the elites who have, uh, because when you have too much money in politics, When inequality is too great, what is destroyed is democracy, Mm. is democracy. And we as Christians believe in democracy not because we think people are just naturally good, but because they often aren't. So you have to check power and check accountability, and you've got to make sure that we have things to prevent us from our worst selves.
0: Jim Wallace suggesting fair and balanced wealth should be a priority for Christian voters. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it? That's always seemed like nonsense to me. I mean, who has a cake and doesn't eat it? Peter Martin is a former economics editor for The Age. He points out that economic policy is really a large collection of financial decisions, and saying yes to funding something is also saying no to funding other things.
7: You need to know that economics is the language of elections for very good reasons. It's uh, not just that it's uh, colonised or infected politics. What economics is, is um, I suppose uh, the science of or the study of making choices, making decisions. Um, And that's what elections are, right? Mm. Um, So a choice might be to give a tax cut to one group of people. Uh, to give a tax cut to another, or to build a hospital, right, hmm. or to increase new start, or something like that. These are hard choices, but a lot of the a lot of the choices we make involve if you can have this you can't have that and that's why why we have costings at the end of uh, elections and uh, why each of the uh, parties or you know each side of politics is making clear if you do this you know labor's saying we're we're taxing these people on dividend imputation and we're taking away uh, some of their capital gains tax concessions in order to spend hospitals in order to do money on this that's what economics is about
0: That was Peter Martin suggesting single-issue voting on economics is a bit of an oxymoron. Economics is so closely linked to every policy, it's impossible to single out as a vote definer. For lots of people, and many, many Christians, sanctity of life is a deal-breaker. American Christians at the end of 2016 were offered a choice to support the lifting of restrictions on abortion under a Democratic Party led by Hillary Clinton, or give their vote to Donald Trump, who campaigned under the banner of maintaining a pro-life policy, it seemed pretty binary. Jim Wallace again.
6: I don't agree with the Democrats on abortion. I think we ought to, in fact, work hard on all sides of this to reduce abortion, which is always a very tragic and desperate thing that women who are vulnerable get trapped into. We can support women who are vulnerable in all kinds of ways, nutrition, health care, and the rest that really reduce abortion. But the Democrats won't commit to that. And Republicans, they're pro-birth, but they're not really pro-life. If you got to be concerned about kids after they're born, kids of color, to cut health care and nutrition and education opportunity really for kids of color is not pro-life. That's just pro-birth for mostly white kids. So that's a hypocrisy on all sides. So instead of looking at how we treat vulnerable people, women and children, we take sides and we blame the other side, and abortion has become a politicized issue, and what I would call a consistent ethic of life. We care about the ethic of life, abortion, but also capital punishment and nuclear weapons and poverty. That's a consistent
0: ethic of life. It's more biblical than just politicising an issue like the right has done here. And the left has done too. What may have been promoted as a standalone policy debate in the US was actually part of a far wider debate on human worth and equality. Mike Frost says it's a similar situation we are facing as voters in Australia.
5: It's foolish to think that back in the day when abortion was illegal, uh, there were no abortions. Now in some parts of Australia, it's it's legal. And there's, of course, the ALP has a policy to to make it legal in every state. There will be more abortions now, but we have no clue how many backyard abortions and bodgy jobs and, and unspeakable suffering that uh, women went through in the 1950s. Uh, we also know that that the approach of taking single mothers to other towns to have babies and wrenching their, their, their kids away from them and adopting them out was heinous and has caused unspeakable suffering. So I go back to that idea. It wasn't all good back in the 50s because certain laws were in place, and it's all bad now because other laws are in place. It's a much more complicated story than that. And so, yeah, look in detail at the policies that various parties have and you know, you may have to hold your nose uh, knowing that none of those policies are perfect in the way that we Christians would like to see them, but we're looking for uh, ways in which um, life might be protected.
0: And again, we find the way forward not as simple as we might imagine. We've been thinking about national issues, freedom, economics, national sanctity of life policy. But what about policies that look outside of Australia? foreign aid expenditure has been cut in six successive government budgets. Less Australian money is being sent overseas for the welfare of the poor and marginalised across the world. Some label that change as appropriate fiscal management in a time of economic downturn. But should we be concerned with the decrease in Australia's overseas generosity and where do the major parties stand on foreign aid policy? Tim Costello is the chief advocate for World Vision. His brother, Peter, was the treasurer of Australia under the Howard government. So Tim is in a unique position to make comment. I started by asking Tim about the history of Australia's foreign aid policy. Back
4: in the late 60s, the rich nations, including Australia, said governments will give 0.7% to the world's poor, those in absolute poverty, and their private... Citizens will give 0.3%. That's 1%. 1% was a promise made for the world's poor. Now, by and large, private citizens have kept their promise, and governments such as the British, the Dutch, the Scandinavian countries have kept their promise of 0.7%. The real standout, shocking standout is Australia. So our aid was at 0.51% under Bob Menzies. Aid was never a left-right issue. Highest under a Conservative Prime Minister who spoke about being responsible and generous.
8: I actually think it's embarrassing we're not giving our fair share as a nation. I think to get a practical handle on this, if you think about what we earn as um, a nation, for every $100 we make in gross national income, we give just 21 cents to the poorest of the poor. And that's going to go to 19 cents.
0: That's Vicky Howarth, the social justice pastor at Seaforth Baptist Church in Sydney and part of the Micah Australia delegation that lobbied government for change in foreign aid policy.
8: So Australia's turning inwards, closing its open hands and it's just shirking from its global responsibilities. So my question there is... Where is the bold and courageous and prophetic voice of the church when we speak against this aid cut? Because when I meet with MPs, they say that foreign aid is an easy target because there's not enough community support.
0: That was Vicky Howarth. Now to speak about this from a Christian perspective, not simply from an economic or socio-political perspective, Jesus talks about loving neighbour. The question for our constituency is... Where does that neighbourhood extend to? Tim Costello explains.
4: So I think that's exactly what Jesus uh, meant when he told us the story of the Good Samaritan, which really began with a spiritual question. Uh, It was prompted by how do I inherit eternal life? And love God, love your neighbour. Who is my neighbour? I better cover that base. And Jesus surprised us all, continues to surprise us by saying, neighbor goes beyond our religion, our mob, our ethnicity. I'm sure the priests and the Levite would have stopped and helped if they knew the person beaten up on the Jerusalem Road was Jewish. But we're told he was stripped naked, so there was no identifying signs. And it was the Samaritan who didn't ask, is he a Samaritan? He actually asked, is this a person in whom the image of God is? A human? And saw a human, not an ethnicity, not a religion. So yes, neighborliness in the first instance, logically, is that it's our immediate neighbours. But if we're Christian, we believe that all people are made in the image of God. We may not be able to save all, but uh, we can save some. And aid is the most practical way of saving many lives and giving girls education and hope who aren't our mob? So I think the answer is in Jesus.
0: It is in the Good Samaritan story. The false, patently false binary of we should be helping our, our own people at home before we even consider foreign aid is often trumped in our churches, in our conversations, in the public rhetoric. It's, it's patently a false binary, but it speaks deeply into fear. What fears do you see in the Christian population in Australia that we need to escape from in order to engage well politically?
4: Well, if I can go back to some fundamentals, I don't think the opposite of faith is doubt. I have to confess I have a lot of doubts with my faith. I think doubt is a Siamese twin of faith. (laughs) Show me a person who says they have no doubts, and I say they don't really have a mature faith. I think the opposite of faith is fear. You know 365 times the bible says fear not be not afraid one for every day of the year much more than actually it says uh, uh, love god love your neighbor it says fear not because fear is the opposite of faith i am particularly saddened when i see christians with a reputation of being fearful i think often secular people look at us it might be unfair and they say what what why are they so fearful If we believe in God and in God's rule in the world and his salvation in Jesus, we of all people should be the most courageous. Fear should be banished, faith should rule. So when I see fear on the lips of Christians, fear of this, fear of that, I really say, have we understood who is on the throne, who rules, who we believe in, who's created this world, who's saved this
0: world, Uh, For me, uh, fear is uh, a mark of a lack of faith. Do you think that fear might play itself out in single issue voting? Yeah, I think it does. Look, I think the CEO of
4: Cambridge Analytica, remember, they uh, got all the Facebook likes and dislikes and could target messages uh, to influence the American election. The CEO said humans are only motivated by two things, fear or hope. He said, don't worry about facts, we just make them up (laughs) as we target uh, micro-target messages under the radar. And we know the most powerful political message is to target their fears, fears of others, fears of losing their guns, fears of foreigners taking their jobs. I think political parties often know that and target fears. Christians of all people have hope. We should be saying we reject elections run on fear. Tell us what your hopes are for this nation and how it looks. Take us on the journey. We'll be, we'll be prepared to make some sacrifices if you show us a hopeful picture of where this nation will be in three years because of your policies. That, that's the politics we should demand of, uh, of our politicians.
0: Politics of hope, not fear. As we think forward to policies that affect our future, it's impossible to ignore climate change. I asked Jim Wallace what a Christian response to climate change might be. Our treatment of
6: God's creation is really sinful. And so this is an issue of stewardship. It's our obedience to God. And that's why the environment or, uh, and climate change are becoming nonpartisan issues for many. Certainly generational. I've got two teenage boys. And for them, this is their future and the future of their kids. So how do we, in fact, be faithful? This is a biblical issue, not just a political one. Then how do we find the solutions? How do we deal with increasing renewable energy? How do we uh, take away the, the dominance of fossil fuels because of the dominance of fossil fuel companies on politicians who they have literally bought, bought and sold politicians, are causing climate change? So we've learned now, if we pay attention, all young people know that the future is renewable energy, safe, clean, and not fossil fuels. So this isn't just a scientific issue or political issue. This is how to be stewards of God's creation. So I think a new generation of young Christians, including young young evangelicals, are going to say, no longer is this acceptable to us. We're going to change this. And... They're doing it not because they're they're labour or conservative, they're doing it because they're they're Christians.
0: The call to be good stewards of God's creation should be taken seriously. In fact, Peter Martin reckons there is no doubt climate change policy will have a significant effect on the result of this election.
7: All of the signs are that It will end up being an election about climate change. Uh, This is the cost of Labor's policies, Labor's emission reduction policies. On one side, Labor will be saying, we need to do this for these people who are a bit distant from us. You know, they're they're, they're people who will be around at the uh, end of this century and, and subsequent centuries. And the coalition saying, why should we have to pay this cost now? These people implicitly, are not worth us saving, not worth us uh, reducing our standard of living somewhat to ensure they have a a reasonable standard of living. Uh, This will, I think the way things are looking this will be the big I suppose scare campaign or and it's quite a good uh, issue I suppose to to end up having the election about because you've got passionate people on both sides and uh, the election may well be in in some ways uh, a referendum on that topic. (laughs)
0: So how are you going juggling all those bowling pins now? Are you ready for another? The refugee debate has been deeply entrenched in political discourse for the past decade and doesn't show any signs of disappearing, though the rhetoric does seem to be softening. Brad Chilcott is the founder of Welcome to Australia, a group who aim to foster more inclusivity in government policy. I asked him if the refugee policy should be vote-defining for Australian Christians.
8: I think it should definitely be a vote influencing issue for Christians. I think we get into a strange situation when we think of one issue and allow that to um, influence our vote to that degree, because I think there's two reasons that, that that happens. One is because the issue personally affects you, and and this is across the board, you know, if you're going to lose a lot of money because you're a a massive property investor and um, negative gearing is about to get slashed then you might vote on that one issue because you don't want to lose that money the other reason we get end up voting on on one issue is because it becomes such a moral blight in our consciousness and we've become you know attached associated with that particular social issue we couldn't possibly bear to vote for a party that doesn't do what we would like them to do on that on that issue and I I actually think both of those are are problematic to a a point in that it's actually whoever becomes government makes decisions for all of society they create an economic system that impacts all of society they create laws that impact all of society they try to implement their vision for society and economy and culture on everyone
0: in our first episode, we spoke with Max Jagannathan, a former Labor Party staffer who now works with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. He arrived in Australia as an infant after fleeing the Sri Lankan civil war with his family. So we're not dealing in abstractions. This is a lived reality.
9: I mean, obviously, as a refugee, uh, someone that came to Australia in that way, uh, I have strong personal views on, on this particular issue, and I have very strong and clear views on how I believe... Uh, gospel-centered public leadership should look and how it should play out in this particular area of policy. But I think what this issue provides us with is a perfect example of why there is no one way to vote as a Christian. And I know that might Um, agitate and offend some some of your listeners, but that's that's just a common sense understanding of political philosophy and a common sense understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is simply not one way that a Christian uh, could be justified in voting. It doesn't matter which of the major or minor parties you look at, there are aspects of Christian moral reasoning. There are aspects of uh, the model of society, the model of ethical thinking that Jesus sets down in the Sermon on the Mount. There are aspects of it which are both upheld and completely trashed by each political party. Every single political party out there, if you voted for them, would uphold and seek to uphold aspects of the Christian moral framework uh, and would quite intentionally not uphold other aspects of it. So the question for the Christian who is voting is where do you feel pulled, yes, in a spiritual and a moral sense, in an ethical sense, in a practical sense, uh, where do you feel pulled? To which aspects of the given parties that are in front of you do you feel that sense of allegiance to want to put your vote on this particular occasion? Where do you
0: feel pulled? It's a good question to ask ourselves. And for Brooke Prentice, it was a simple question to answer. As an Indigenous Australian, when Brooke came to know Jesus, it was a natural progression for her to begin campaigning for the rights of Aboriginal Australians. Brooke is a Waka Waka woman from Queensland, a spokesperson for the Common Grace Movement and a senior fellow for Anglican Deaconess Ministries.
2: I think every Aboriginal person is always born with uh, an innate sense of seeking justice uh, because your reality of injustice you face as a child uh, and then it's with you your whole life. And so, you know, that's what drives me. I didn't become a Christian until I was 21, but I was still already before I became a Christian, a passionate advocate for justice. My faith just strengthened that uh, because I learned of a a man named Jesus, uh, who was our greatest social justice warrior the world has ever seen and uh, who understand poverty and power and privilege and riches. And he was a man through love that challenged those um, domains. And so that's what strives me uh, to seek justice and work towards an Australia my my hope and prayer is an Australia built on truth, justice, love, and hope. And so uh, I think we've got a long way to go in um, working towards each of those, but that's what will drive me uh, through my faith in Jesus. That's what drives me.
0: Let's turn our attention to our election. The campaign's in full swing. We're going to the polls. How can Christian Australians utilise their vote In a way, that does benefit to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia.
2: That's a hard one because I'm not sure how we can utilise our vote to do that. And I think it's got to come from not just one action of voting. For me, it's actually participating in the political process, in the election process. So I want people to do some education Uh, ask questions, but ask questions of all of their candidates. I think the time is over where political parties just rely on these policies and we hear the same thing from the media uh, and we need to ask the questions about what truly matters. And as Christians, loving our neighbour, Many of these policies aren't talking about loving their neighbour. So let's ask the candidates the real questions. How will they love, how will the candidate of whichever political party or independent, how will they love their neighbour as themselves? How will they love their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander neighbour? Where do they stand on treaty and treaties? How will that candidate uh, personally uh, work towards closing the gap? What will they personally do if they were elected to Parliament? Indigenous rights, economy,
0: climate change, refugees, sanctity of life, foreign aid, freedom of religion, all important considerations as we approach our vote. Did I get through the internal list you thought about right at the start of this episode? Perhaps I've added some new ideas. They're all important and some more important to you than others, and Christians have a stake in all of them. Now, the trick is to keep juggling and hold your nose while you vote. Good luck with that. I understand the significance and difficulty of that task, but that's the cost of good political engagement. It's not supposed to be easy. However, as we've explored today, there is much at stake and much to make that task worthwhile. On the next episode of How in God's Name Should I Vote...
3: Look, we would always say that caring for the poor isn't um, a left issue or a right issue, it's a moral issue, and we're in a position to actually do something. We're a blessed
7: country, we can do more.
0: That was Joe Knight from Tier Australia. We'll expand the conversation we've started in this episode as we consider how to best use our vote for the benefit of others. What does it look like to be truly others-centred as we approach the polling booth? And who else needs the power of our vote? If you're enjoying How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamley.